The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for being with us this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're a month into a sermon series on this New Testament letter known as 1 John. We're also about a fall, about a month into the fall school semester, and I've recently heard a couple of kindergarten comments. One was from a little boy who came home from his first day, and his mom asked him excitedly, how was kindergarten? And the little boy responded, great, what am I going to do tomorrow? As if that was it. He finished up kindergarten in the first day. And then a couple of days later, she asked him, well, how was your day today? And he said, well, not very good. She tried to teach us to read, and it didn't work. And that was it, as if it was over, as if learning to read in kindergarten doesn't take a little while. It does take a little while. And so too does the Christian life. And John understands this even if we don't understand it. We're often ready to move on from things that we've already heard and supposedly learned prematurely. Basic things like who the scripture says Jesus is, not who it is that we try to make him out to be in our imaginations, or what it is to be a Christian, what it is to not be a Christian, what it is to live life like a Christian, and what it is to not live life like a Christian. Even the significant difference between the kingdom of God and and the world, and how much confusion, deception, even self-deception there is in the world. We never finish with these things and move on. And when we do, when we try to do so, we place ourselves in serious spiritual peril. And some of you are in serious spiritual peril this morning. If you weren't, then we wouldn't have this book. One of the reasons that 1 John is in the New Testament is because there are people in every age, just like the ones to whom he is writing, those in serious spiritual peril. And part of the pathway too serious spiritual peril is failing to know what time it is. John writes about time in this passage. And so what time is it and why does that matter? Two points this morning. One, the passing world. And secondly, the last hour. First of all, the passing world. Immediately before our passage, John spends about a half of a chapter on the topic of loving one another. Love in the sense of service. He says, you can't call yourself a Christian if you don't love and serve other people in the way that Jesus has loved you and served you and continues to do so, especially those with whom you worship and especially those with whom you live. In other words, knowing Jesus makes you love other people, period. So he says, love one another. And then in our passage, he says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. 
And so what are the things in the world? Verse 16, he describes them. Look there, he has three phrases. The first is this general overarching description, the desires of the flesh. Now, as I often tell you, flesh doesn't mean physical body here. It means sinful, broken, spiritual nature, one that we all have. And so desires of the flesh are anything that your spiritual nature, broken as it is, inordinately desires. And so cravingly desires. The New Testament, or the, the NIV and the King James Version, they use different words. They, they use the words lust, lust of the flesh, or even cravings. Other translations use that word. And those are better words because they, they sound clearly negative. Whereas desires can be either positive or negative, but 35 of the 38 times that this word is used throughout the New Testament, it's always negative. It's always negative with John. He uses it three times here in just two different verses. And the word for him means focused urgings, kind of as Josh intimated earlier at our confession of sin. It's this Greek word epithumia. Thumia is this Greek word that means wind or storm. So this internal storm that drives us. And some of you, all of us, know what that's like. When we go after something and after something and after something, and we say things like, I just can't help myself, or I just can't stop. This past Sunday, I was mowing the yard and suddenly felt sharp pinpoint pains all over the back of my head, the side of my face. And guess what it was? Wasps. Somebody said it. And after I finished educating the neighborhood children on some new words that they've never heard before, I... I laughed, I chuckled, I thought of Forrest Gump. Remember what Forrest Gump said? Something bit me, something had bitten me, and it was these wasps all over my head, and especially in my ear. My ear swelled up, it looked like a wrestler's ear who had never worn headgear, and it was red, and, 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 and then the redness started traveling down my neck and all across my chest, and I couldn't hear very well, I couldn't sleep well, but what I could do is I could kill those wasps, and I did, inordinately. I bought this can of air raid aerosol, and I sprayed the entire can upon them. You know, I, I, they probably died after the first few seconds, but did I stop? No, I did not stop. I emptied the entire can. Gage, my son, was watching me. He kept saying, Dad, they're dead. Dad, they're dead. But I just emptied. I couldn't stop. And that, in some ways, is epithumia. It's what John is talking about. It's part of what the power of sin does to us when it makes us want something inordinately. It's almost always something good but we want it badly, cravingly. And so what is it for you? Let me help you answer that. Notice there are two other phrases in verse 16 that John attaches to this first phrase, to the, to the phrase desires of the flesh. He goes on to describe it by speaking about the desires of the eyes. So what you constantly look at or gaze upon, imagine. John is saying what it is that you look at most is what you want most. So what do your eyes always come back to? Some of you are thinking, well, alcohol, drugs, food, pornography, those are things that people become addicted to and focus upon and can't give up. And that's true. And some of you know what that's like, but, but there are less obvious answers. Answers like my work or my success in general, or more specifically, my bottom line or my bank account or my weight or my kid's happiness, my kid's success, or your lover or your next lover or your next dress how you'll look in that dress, your, your weight, your image, your beauty, your next vacation, your next test, kids, your next game, children, your next sale, whatever it may be, whatever your eyes always go back to. And then also in verse 16, he speaks about the pride of life, which we better translated pride in possessions. He's talking about the possessions that once acquired supposedly assure us 
that we matter, that we have meaning in life, that we've lived a good life and that we are somebody. So we think once we have this, and we all do this, once I have this, or then if I have this, or, or maybe not that, but if I just have this, then that will be enough. And that's the lie. The lie is, oh, this will be enough because the truth is it's never enough. And friends, that's what it's, that is what is in the world, according to John, good things, good things that we make into ultimate things and begin to crave them, to live for them, and to set our hearts upon them and worship them like they're some sort of God, thinking that they can give us life. And John just simply says they can't. They cannot give you life. So he says, don't love them for a couple of reasons. One, because you can only love one ultimate thing. Verse 15, he says, if anyone loves the world, just like I've described, then the love of the father is not in him because there's no room. You can only set your heart ultimately upon one highest love. There's a sermon that I read a number of years ago by this man named Thomas Chalmers. It's entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. They had better sermon titles 200 years ago. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He says this. He says, what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. He goes on to describe a young man who's, who's obsessed, who's, who's focused upon uh, worldly pleasure. But then before too long, he gives up worldly pleasure because his heart gets set upon wealth and the acquisition of wealth and business. And before too long, he gives up his focus on business because he involved, becomes involved in politics and he gets caught up in worldly power. And he says, there's not one of these identity transformations. And we all know identity transformations. In our own lives, the lives of others, we see people change and change and change. He says, there's not one of these identity transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some one object of absolute love is unconquerable. He's saying, whomever you are, your heart has a highest love. It's something that it wants more than anything else. And there's only room for one in your heart, only one. And John agrees here. The other reason that John says to not love the world or the things in the world has to do with time. You see verse 17, look there. He says, the world is passing away along with its lusts or its cravings, its desires, epithumia again. So for John, Christians, one of the things that's different about Christians is that they have a very distinct sense of time. They're conscious that this world is passing away, that, that the things in this world, all of the good things of this world, all of the blessings, the, the benefits, the treasures, the good things that you have, and so many of us have so many good things. He's saying they'll all be gone at some point, and that should shape the kind of devotion that we have to these things. So before I go on, just listen and hear from John, that whatever worldly good or treasures or blessing that you have, they are not permanent. So don't be mesmerized by the temporary. This is a massive part of what it means, according to John, to be a Christian, that a Christian is someone who has come to the realization that we live in a time and a place that is passing away. It is passing away, but we are passing through unto God. And he alone is worth our heart's highest affection. He alone is the one that can satisfy or give us life. And he's permanent. It's permanent. So the world is passing away, point one. But point two, in addition to that, it is the last hour. The last hour of this world has struck. John says that plainly in verse 18. Children, he loves these people. Children, it is the last hour. And 
I don't know. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here in verses 18 through 27. So I don't have time to go into it all. But before we all begin imagining bad Kirk Cameron movies in our mind or worrying about being left behind or something like that, those things that you were thinking about as Brooke was reading this for you, just focus upon what John says about the last hour and a couple of signs that mark it. Because John, in the gospel of John, Jesus speaks a lot about his hour. Remember his famous miracle of turning water into wine? Remember, it's his first miracle, the wedding in Cana of Galilee. His mother comes to him and says, there's a problem. And what does Jesus say? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. There are three hours related to Jesus and Jesus's work in John's writing. And the first hour is the hour of his crucifixion and his death, where he suffers and dies for our sin, for the sin of the world. And that hour is always weighing upon Jesus all throughout his gospel, from the very beginning, all the way to the end. That's why he turns water into wine, because it's a sign of his coming death. And he doesn't just turn some water into wine. Do you remember how much? 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine. It's a lot of wine. You know how many bottles that would make? Over a thousand bottles of wine because it's the sign of his hour, the hour of his death, where the wine of his blood would flow endlessly for us, for you, for the forgiveness of your sin, whatever it is that you've done, whatever it is that's been done to you. Over a thousand bottles of wine to say that there's no end to his blood flowing for you. And beyond that, that people might find joy. You can find joy in that real joy, festival joy, wedding reception type of joy, inebriating joy, joy unlike anything that the world or the wine of this world can give. That is his first hour. And then his second hour is what we read of here, what Josh read for you in our gospel reading. It's in chapter 14 and also in chapter 16 where Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit. And notice what Jesus calls him here. He calls him a helper. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about this word that's translated helper. It's this word paraclete from the Roman law court, where a paraclete was someone who stood up on behalf of the accused and spoke to the judge in that person's defense, stood up for them and spoke on their behalf. And at the day of Pentecost, the spirit of God was poured out upon God's people, upon Jesus's people in order that he might do that, that he might be near to us always and stand up for us always, even against ourselves. Because all too often we are our harshest judges. We are our greatest critics. And we think and we say things like, if anyone found out about that, they would never love me. If God really knew, and he does know, so he can't love me, he can't forgive me of this. Not now. Or or, this person's harmed me, this person's rejected me, God can't be any different than them. He'll he'll harm me if I get near. He'll harm me if I'm honest. He'll, He'll reject me as well. Often we are our greatest critics and our harshest judges. There's a story that I read of Coach Mike Krzyzewski, Duke, famous, legendary coach. Coach, it was a number of years ago, and I think it was in Sports Illustrated, but it talks about his wife waking up one morning and, and hearing him supposedly talking on the phone in the bathroom to somebody. And he was, he was just ripping this person a new one. He was yelling at them, and all these expletives were coming out of him, telling this person how they were a terrible coach and a terrible human being, and no one would respect them. Nobody appreciated. He was doing a terrible job. She felt bad for this person. She peeked her head in to see who it is that he was talking to, and he wasn't talking on the phone. What was he doing? He was looking in the mirror and talking to himself. And we're all like that sometimes with ourselves at some point. And the Holy Spirit defends us to ourselves against ourselves so that we, as, as John says here, so we can know peace 
There's a peace that can come from the second hour of Jesus's work because the first hour has happened. The first hour established peace between us and God so that we might know that peace now that the spirit of God has been poured out upon us. And then there's this third hour. It's the third hour that, that John speaks about here or the last hour. And it's this time in between, between when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon God's people and Jesus returns. Over the past couple of years, more so than any time in my 25 years in ministry, I've been asked by people if I think that our world is coming to an end. I've said things like, Tim, the pandemic, and this bizarre, extreme weather that we're having, the rise in crime, mass shootings, and all the political turmoil and the political chaos and the wars, the war in Ukraine, the wars and rumors of war, rumors of war in, in Taiwan or with China. Pastor, do you think that we're living in the last days? And what's my answer? Absolutely. We're absolutely living in the last days. John tells us that it is the last hour. It's been the last hour for 2000 years and it will continue to be so until Jesus, like a thief in the night, returns. And so we need to understand that not only is the world as a whole passing away and the last hour has struck, but also lesser worlds than the world as a whole, lesser worlds continually and regularly end. Summer in June, I think I read an article by Peter Lightheart entitled Radical Hope. The tagline for that article is when worlds die, we need something sturdier than the myth of technological and social progress. Then he goes on to recount about the Roman Empire and how it died, and then the, the French monarchy, how it ended, and then how the supposedly secure European peace that was established after World War II, it's ended now with Russia attacking Ukraine. And, and then he goes on to talk about how the pandemics throughout history have played an outsized role in empires ending. For example, before the Reformation in the 16th century and the Enlightenment in the 17th century, do you know what happened? The bubonic plague. Somebody said it, the Black Death which killed between 20 and 30 million people across Europe, one third of their population. And so he writes, the year 2020 came down upon us like a wolf upon the fold. Then came 2021 and then 2022. It feels like the end of the world as we know it, quoting REM, which I never thought that Peter Lightheart would quote REM, but there you go. And then he says, it feels like an apocalypse. It may be one. Worlds do die. Ours may be dying. And he goes on to talk about Western civilization and American influence contracting all across the world. And it's a sobering read, but this is how he ends. He says, over the two millennia since the birth of Christianity, many worlds have ended, just as our world may be ending now. At such times, it is the task of Christians to nourish hope within societies whose transient hopes have withered. Christians must become, churches must become communities that cultivate radical hope. And so do we. We cultivate radical hope. And here, according to John, is how we do so. He says, first of all, we aren't deceived or dismayed by antichrists. That is what he calls this group of people who are part of the church, but who've recently left the church. I've been telling you about them. There's this group that, that left the church, and, and now they're trying to persuade those who haven't left to leave the church as well. And this group had become influenced by Gnosticism, which is a term that some of you have probably never heard, but it was rampant throughout the first century. And it taught that the physical, material world was evil, that it was all entirely bad. And so Jesus could not be the Christ. That's the denial that's mentioned in verse 22 and 23, that Jesus is not the Christ. 
because God would never take on a human body. Instead, they taught that Christ was a divine spiritual figure that descended upon Jesus, the man at his baptism, stayed with him throughout his life, but then left him before he was crucified. And so God didn't become human. God didn't die to defeat sin, death, and evil. Jesus in the end was just a man, just maybe an important man, a good man, but just a man, not God, just another man who died and didn't rise from the dead. And so all of that miraculous stuff, all of that supernatural stuff, the virgin birth, incarnation, miracles, resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, you don't need to believe any of that. Get rid of it. In fact, it's more important how you live than, than what you believe. And if you just live as influenced by Jesus's life, that's all you need to do in order to be called yourself a Christian. You don't have to believe anything specifically, just live influenced by his teachings. They said that, and we've heard that. 2,000 years later, we hear the same thing. And John here emphatically says no. So emphatically, he doesn't just say that this group has a different opinion about Jesus. What does he say? In verse 22, he says they're liars. And our time is no different. At the beginning of the 20th century, many of our leaders in various denominations, Protestant denominations primarily across the United States, decided that modern people like us could no longer believe these core doctrinal beliefs of Christianity. The supernatural and the miraculous could, could no longer be believed, and so they had to revise their teachings, and they did. They thought our influence and our standing within society will no longer continue. So if people are going to keep coming, if we're going to continue to grow as churches, then we need to revise our teachings. And so they chose church growth and social acceptance over truth. And where are those churches now? They're dying. Their world is ending. Because for John, Antichrist, or anyone who denies the irreducible body of core beliefs that you have to hold to be a Christian, summed up in the statement, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, God in the flesh, died for sin, rose again from the dead, true King, giver of the Spirit. And so he says, do not be deceived by those who are in and around the church for a while. There will always be such, but they will eventually always go out and do not go out with them. It's the main message of the whole book. Do not go out with them because you have a spirit who teaches you otherwise. And that's the other mark of the last hour. One is the Antichrist leaving. The other is others staying and believing, not just being persuaded intellectually, but knowing. Do you see that emphasis in verse 21 and 20? Three different times he speaks about knowledge. You know, he says, it's, it's intellectual, but it's more than intellectual. He's saying you've been gripped deep down within your souls. You've been taught from the inside out, not from the outside in by teachers like me or liars like them, but you've been taught from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. And John calls it an anointing, that there is a touch upon your soul that abides. He's saying you don't need these liars as teachers because you have God himself as your teacher dwelling within you. And you know you know who Jesus is. So has that happened to you? The moment when you knew that this is true, that God did shed his blood, that he did take on flesh, and he did die for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. He was born, he suffered, and died, and rose for you. Not because he had to, because he wanted to. He wanted you. Has that hit you, the reality of that hits you and gripped you and begun to expel other things. There was a moment like that for me. I, I grew up in the church and always considered myself a Christian, but after my freshman year in college, and I've told you this story, some of you have heard it before, 
but I was struggling. I was just tired, tired of myself, tired of life and the way that I was living. So I began to go to the church for the first time, not because I had to out of obligation, but because I wanted to out of desperation. And I began reading the scriptures for the first time on my own and my life began to change. It's amazing how that works. And my life began to change. And there came a moment a few days before going back to college, my sophomore year, where I realized that I had a decision that I had to make. I had to either cut up this felony fake ID that I had and continue in this change that had begun, or I could not. And for those of you who are young, millennials and generations younger, you need to understand it was the 1990s. And to commit a felony then, you had to do so in person. We didn't commit felonies via computer. So if you wanted a felony fake ID, you had to take your, somebody else's birth certificate, someone that was older, and take it to the local DMV and impersonate them in person with an actual person and fill out real paperwork with paper and ink and break the law and commit felonies in person. It was harder to be a felon in the 1990s than it is now, but I had done that. And I remember staring at this felony fake ID and these scissors in the other hand and thinking, what am I going to do? And so I cut up that ID. And as soon as I did, something happened something happened. I didn't hear the hallelujah chorus. I didn't see Jesus's face in a tortilla or anything weird like that, but, <laughs> but something happened. And I knew that God was present. And I knew that I didn't hear an audible voice, but I, but I knew that he was present. I knew that something had changed, that I had changed, that I'd been taught, taught in such a way that, that I knew and believed in a way that I hadn't before. And no liar could persuade me otherwise. That anointing, John says, that very touch of God, the Holy Spirit abides in you. It abides in you and he hasn't left you and he won't leave you. So do not leave him. Abide in the one who abides in you. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to him here in worship. Stay close to him in and through the scriptures. Stay close to him in prayer. Stay close to him by staying close to other Christians in whom he abides. Stay close and stay near. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray. We pray that all of that which you have promised would be true. It is true. And we, that we would know it, even as John speaks, that you would continue to pour out your spirit upon us, even now as we come to your table, that in and through it, as in and through your scriptures, that we might know who Jesus is and all of that which he has done for us to reconcile us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.